Thank you for listening to this Table Church Sermon podcast. We are in our Advent series right now called Christmas Playlist. And in this series, we are taking a look at some of the lyrics in our favorite Christmas hymns. Now, these songs that we sing each year have some profound theological and scriptural truths in them, but we're in danger of missing it because of how familiar many of us have become with those songs. So I hope that you enjoy this message. And as always, feel free to find us online at tablechurchdsm.org. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's so good to have you here tonight. Thank you for coming. I see a lot of people I've never met before, and so I assume that you're friends or family, or maybe you're just somebody who, you know what, realized they needed to go to church tonight. And if that's the case, welcome. We are so glad that you are here, so glad that you are joining us. I, felt that, I hope that you felt right at home here tonight at Table Church. We are grateful to have you. As Pastor Megan said earlier, uh, we're giving our offering away. It's what we do every Christmas Eve, and we're giving it to the Awakened Church Planting Network. This is a network that actually was birthed out of the church that, well, Megan and I both used to work at in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, right before we came here. We were the, we're the first church plant out of this network, and in the last four years, they've planted 11 churches. They've got four more in the hopper for next year. And these churches span from coast to coast, and uh, it's a really magnificent thing that God is doing to spread the gospel uh, through church planting. And so please give generously, and it'll be an amazing way for us to be able to kind of give back to those who blessed us early on. So let's be sure to, uh, to give generously and to praise God for all that he has done through Table Church in the last four years. So on January 10th, 49 BC, 49 years before Christ, history changed. Julius Caesar, who was at that time the governor of a Roman province, uh, led an army across the Rubicon River and attacked the city of Rome. Now, up until this moment, up until this point, Rome was a republic. That means that kind of like the United States, citizens would vote on elected officials to represent them in the Senate. Of course, back then, the citizens who voted were only the wealthy men. Uh, but that's how they operated back then. However, when Julius Caesar crossed the river and entered the city, a bloody civil war occurred, and he eventually emerged victorious and declared himself the dictator. And in that moment, the Roman Republic had ended and the Roman Empire had begun. This saw a long string of emperors, or Caesars, who would rule over essentially the entire known world at the time. Now, maybe the most powerful of these Caesars was actually the second one, the one to come right after Julius Caesar. And it was actually his adopted son, his biological nephew. His name was Augustus. Augustus did more to expand the borders and the power and the prosperity of Rome than anyone the world had ever seen. In fact, they started to build temples to his name. They started to consider him to be divine. They regarded him as a god. In fact, one writing that we've discovered from the time lays out the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And I say the gospel of Caesar Augustus because it actually uses that word. Here's what it says. Providence, which has ordered all things, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, it says. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings, that's the word for gospel, 
for the world that came by reason of him. And then whenever Caesar Augustus would win a decisive battle, a victory, men on horseback would ride into the surrounding villages. These men were called evangelists and they would proclaim the good news that Augustus had won another victory for Rome. I suspect that Luke, the writer of the third gospel, was well aware of all of this when he starts the story of Jesus' birth by referring to Caesar Augustus. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So what we have here is a ruler with complete authority. If he wants a census, he gets a census. Everybody's got to go back to their towns of birth. And so there was a young man named Joseph and his pregnant fiance Mary who went to the town of Bethlehem. And while they were there, they had their baby. And that is when things start to get weird. Luke says there are some shepherds out in their fields and suddenly an angel appears to him. It says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born for, to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So just notice this for a second. Ten verses after mentioning Caesar Augustus, Luke is now using words that were applied to Augustus, but he's applying them to Jesus. For example, the angel says, I bring you good news. That's the exact same word that we just heard applied to Augustus. Gospel, good news. And he says that he's born in the town of David. David was a mighty king. And it says that he is a savior. Well, that's the same word they used about Augustus too. And then it says that there's a heavenly host of angels that appear. You know what a host is? It's an army. That's what a host is. So Luke is showing us here, hey, there's a new king in town. And his name's not Augustus. We're in a series right now, a sermon series. In fact, we're wrapping it up tonight. It's our Christmas series called Christmas Playlist. And we've just been looking at some of our favorite Christmas carols and some of the scriptural theological truths that are in those songs that we sing every year and get so familiar with. Tonight, we're looking at a line from Joy to the World. And that line is, let earth receive her king. And as you can see, the Christmas story is a revolution. The earliest Christians saw Jesus as a king over and above Caesar Augustus. This is important for us to emphasize tonight because, listen, we often miss this. Jesus isn't just our savior. He is also our king. And I want you to notice the difference between a save, savior and a king. Saviors. Saviors don't require anything of me. But a king does. To see Jesus as a savior means I've received something from him, but to see Jesus as a king means that something is required of me now. Of course, Jesus is our savior. He came to save us from the power of sin, but what we're seeing here is that that's not all that Jesus is, and Luke could not have been any more clear with us. Jesus is a king. When we only see Jesus as our savior, but not also our king, you know what we do? We make him into a commodity. 
someone who provides us a service. And I mean, sure, we're thankful for it when somebody saves us, right? But we don't give them our lives. In fact, sometimes we can take him for granted when Jesus is only our Savior. My guess is tonight, though, there may be some of us here who are willing to say, Jesus, save me, but aren't yet willing to say, Jesus, conquer me. That phrase feels funny in my mouth. Jesus, conquer me. We don't, we don't like that. We don't want to be ruled by anyone. We want the Savior, but not the King. And I mean, that's understandable. I mean, who wants to be conquered? Who wants to be ruled over? But here's the problem. We are all following someone or something. We all worship something. We're, we all are obeying someone. In fact, there's this quote that I love. If I'm guilty of overusing one quote, it's this one. A guy named David Foster Wallace, a famous writer at a commencement address, he makes this point so well for me. He's saying we all worship something. You have a king. It's simply a matter if you know who it is or not. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. And here's the good news. King Jesus is unlike any other thing that you can follow. He's the Prince of Peace, we say. We just sang it. And that peace is what he wants to share with each and every one of us. So listen, when you surrender to this king, you get freedom in return. Caesar ain't like that. When Caesar comes and conquers your village... Guess what? Now you're a slave. Now you're going to work for him. Now you're going to pay taxes to him. And listen, Jesus is not a king in the order of Caesar. He is not a king in the order of this world. Jesus is completely unlike every other ruler, every other thing that you could worship, because Jesus doesn't want to take your freedom. He wants to give it to you. I read an article recently by a, a, a famous clinical psychologist, and, and he's alarmed at the tremendous increase in mental health uh, problems that young people today are facing, Generation Z. There's been a 145% increase in anxiety and depression among girls. There's been a 165% increase among boys. Now, the number of girls is higher, but the ratio of increase among boys is higher. And so no matter how you slice it, it's a problem. And even worse is that there's been a huge spike in, in suicide attempts as well, particularly among young men. Something has gone deeply wrong. All of this has occurred in the last 13 to 15 years. Just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, something in our culture started blowing up. And there's these mental health problems going on that are manifesting particularly in young people. Something has gone wrong. We should be alarmed at this. And I suspect, and many others do as well, it has to do with the fact that we, we have lost a sense of our purpose. We, as, a, as a culture, it's hard for us to identify what is my, what's the point of my life? What am I doing here? What are we for? Experts call this the meaning crisis. We're in the midst of a meaning crisis. In a very short amount of time, culture has somehow lost any sense of meaning, purpose. And what we've done is we've said, well, the only thing you really need to do is you just need to follow your own impulses, your own desires. You know better than anybody else what you should be doing, so just follow whatever it is that internal voice says. We've made ourselves kings and queens, but it turns out we're not very good ones. There was a woman, there is a woman named Ayan Hirsi Ali. She was a prominent atheist thinker. She's a research fellow at Stanford. 
And she recently kind of blew things up when she published an article called Why I Am Now a Christian. She was a famous atheist in the mix with Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and other famous atheists. But she recently became a Christ follower. And she wrote an article and she had some big interviews and stuff online you can find. Um, I've listened to her words about her conversion and, and something that struck me is she, she had this very personal kind of moment of crisis where she went to a very dark place of depression and anxiety and she just couldn't figure out any sort of meaning in life. Like she, she, she was suffering from a, a void in her life. And, and she would go and pay as much money as it took to the best psychiatrist, the best psychologist that money could afford, but it wasn't enough. Well, one day she was sitting with a therapist and the therapist said to her, listen, I, th I think that you are spiritually bankrupt. And I imagine she said like, look, I'm an atheist. That's not a category I accept, right? But the therapist said to her, listen, if you could like design your own God, what would that God be like? And she started writing stuff out. And, and pretty soon she realized that she's describing Jesus of Nazareth. And she realized that this is someone I could give my life to. And she did. Listen, when we bow our knee to Christ, we are acknowledging that we have been made for something, that we have a mission in life. Our souls are finally pointed towards the end for which we were made. We, we call this uh, our purpose or our telos, the thing that was pulling us, the thing that we are drawn to, the thing that we were made for. That's what we get when we bow our knee to this king. When Jesus would grow to become a man, they eventually would crucify him. And as they put him on the cross, they put a crown on him, a crown of thorns. And they nailed a sign above his head that said, King of the Jews. And so what this means is that this king that we're talking about tonight is completely unlike any other king, any other thing you could follow. This is a king who comes and dies for his people. Let me tell you something. No Caesar did that. Caesars live for themselves, but Jesus died for us. This is a king completely unlike any other king that we could imagine because he's not just a king. He's also a savior. See, at Christmas, we get both. We get a savior and a king. And that is everything we need for true, meaningful life. And so tonight, if you, perhaps you've just wanted the Savior, but not the King, and you're think, thinking to yourself, you know what? I don't want to be a statistic. I don't want to be one of those people that suffer from this meaning crisis they're talking about. Or maybe you're all realizing that's where I'm at. That describes me. I want to invite you to a life of purpose. It starts by bowing your knee to the, the true King, the one who made you and who designed life and who knows how it should be lived. And so if you'd like to do that, I'm going to give you a chance tonight, but we, we have a baptism coming up on January 14th, and if, if you want to make that public declaration that Jesus is your king, not just your savior, although if he's not your savior, well, let's take care of that too right now, but listen, that's what baptism is. It's a public declaration to the world that you give your allegiance to Jesus Christ and none other. In fact, every time I baptize someone, I ask them a question. I say, do you turn from sin and darkness do you give your full allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ? By the power of God, do you endeavor to live a life of holy love? And if that's what you want to give yourself to tonight, 
I want to invite you to do so. And I want to invite you to make it public on January 14th by being baptized with us. And so just circle on your connection card, there's a cross. And that's how we'll know that you want to make that step or you want to be baptized. Or you can just write it on your card as well. Baptism. Whatever the case is, we would love to be to, to walk alongside you in that process. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we honor you tonight as the one who came for us and who's coming again. You are a king who not only died for us, but you're coming for us too. And so we thank you, Jesus. And now for anyone here tonight who has never made that proclamation that Jesus is my Lord, that Jesus is my king, would you pray this with me? Jesus, would you save me and would you conquer me? Would you give me the meaning and the purpose that my heart is longing for, that my soul is hoping for? Today I surrender my life to you and I ask that you would come into it and you would transform me from the inside out. Would you send your spirit into my life to guide me and would you help me to live every day for you? I pray all of these things in the name of King Jesus, our Lord. Amen.